you want to leave? No. (laughs) The, like, MAA, like, the Michigan Archival Administration conference is, like, going on today, and I, like, I'm registered because I'm like presenting a poster tomorrow, but I was like, I'm not an archivist anymore. I'm not going to this. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It's just, I just have such a block about it. As dumb as that sounds. Uh, but. I mean, you could say once an archivist, always an archivist. You just don't currently work in that role. It's like, I'm glad for the training. But it's also like, I like my, and I'm sure you feel this way. I like my job now. And it's like, like you were saying, like on the episode of Just Us, I can envision myself working with like an archivist of a local historical society if I really like that person and like want to like, you know, hang out and do it. Or like, I like the project, like if they let me pick whatever I wanted to work on. But it's like, I don't know that I have the desire to like do it in any other capacity anymore. Right. Like I got kicked in the teeth and now I'm like, nope. Hey man, you're talking to the, I know about that stuff. I know. Yeah. I don't know. It's just weird. I get it. But like, it's like not ideal. Yeah. Hey ladies. Hello. Hello. Give me one second. Like I, you are my third meeting for the day. No problem. Take your time. And I am in my closet um, I'm just scrambling to run into the closet. Okay. Um, and I am recording on my end. Okay. If that's okay. Yeah, and okay. I will, and, and I, and I'll send you the file. Okay. And I will get room tape, uh, room tone at the end. Okay. Okay. All right. I think I'm set. It's been a while since I've been in the closet. <laughs> I remember but, doing but that's that. That's a you sentence remember? you didn't yeah. envision saying that. Like, it's been a while since I've been in the closet. Like, I mean, I just tell people, oh, I'm headed into the closet or, you know, I'm getting out of the closet. So yes, it was not a phrase I'd ever thought I'd use, but it's one that I'm using quite often. So I want to make sure I am recording. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Okay. How are you? Good. I mean, we were talking about, you know, we both were talking about like being an archivist and it's funny because like, I guess this kind of ties into like your podcast, like the podcast is so focused on using the archives and both Ray and I have like strong archival backgrounds, but we've both taken jobs in like libraries, which is like something that wasn't a choice. It was more like pandemic. It was an opportunity. Yeah, let's call it that. Yeah, an opportunity. We both, you know, we got, we both didn't have jobs at certain points in the pandemic. And now we both have full-time jobs with benefits. So, you know, it's an opportunity. (laughs) Allie's not there yet in her thinking. (laughs) I mean, it matters, but it's not where you want to be. And so what you inevitably, I would imagine, have to worry about is whether or not you're going to be able to have another opportunity to get you where you want to be. Is that the hesitation, the concern that you have? I honestly feel bitter. More than anything else, bitter is the adjective I would use solely because I think, you know, I 
you know, so many people are like in the profession and stuff. And then you read like cases about archivists, mis- like mishandling things or things getting ruined, or, you know, people you graduated with who have jobs and you're just, and like you, it's just, you know, how hard you work and you know how hard other people maybe didn't work or like, you right. know, you're like that person has a job in archives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And look, it's not like look, where I, I feel like this be. has to be a safe space. This has got to be a safe space, you know? I mean, Allie, you know, with conversations with me, like, real talk. Yeah. Exactly. And that's why I know I can say this to you, is it's like, I don't want to be bitter about it. And, like, so I was saying this to Ray before, like, you, like, hopped in, and it's just, like, I like my job now. It's not what I wanted. It's not where I envisioned myself, but I like it. And in a lot of ways, it's not going to fulfill that passion that I have but it's a job and it's going to pay my bills and it's going to allow me to do things that will be that passion. And then maybe that's not a bad thing. But like I was saying is it's just like, maybe like, I don't want a job in archives anymore unless it's like a volunteer job where I'm being really valuable to a historical society who has all this great material who otherwise, you know, wouldn't be able to get shit done without me. And like, maybe that's just the realm I exist in now. Right. And, you know, it could, I think the maintaining your passion, because one of the things we covered on Seizing Freedom is making a living Mm -hmm. and making a living isn't like you're, and it's sort of, I always remind people of this statement that Toni Morrison said, and her dad told her, you go to work, you get your money, you come home. Right. And so with Season Freedom, when we talk about making a living, making a living isn't just about working so you can have food in your mouth and a roof over your head. It's so you can use that, your earnings to live how you want to, to spend your money how you want beyond what your basic needs are. And so the jobs that you have right now, they absolutely do matter. And the question is whether or not you will be open to and on the lookout for opportunities to live doing the kind of work that brings you more joy that may not be related to having a job as an archivist. So like, I don't, what, I hope that you're not sort of turning your back completely on it because you never know, heck, I'm hosting a bloody podcast, right? Never in my, you know, never in my wildest dreams. And I'm sure some of my colleagues are, you know, fighting mad about the fact that I'm doing the show and looking to sort of use it against me. But it's not something that I ever thought I would imagine doing, but it's actually work that I love. And I'm looking for like more opportunities to do this kind of work, not necessarily looking looking to leave my Wayne State job because it is a job, not a calling, a job. It allows me to live and pursue all of these other things, right? But What I'm hoping is that your openness and your interest in other kinds of work will keep you on the lookout for opportunities to do this kind of work, even if it's not in the formal position as an archivist. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, and and that's kind of like what I was saying to like, because like, you know, I saw my dad over the weekend because it was 4th of July, I mean, Father's Day weekend and and he's like, how's the job? Do you love it? And I'm just like, "Ah." it's a job. Well, and it's like, you know, and like, I was like saying this to him and I was trying to explain it. And like, Ray can say this. I 
volunteer myself for everything because I don't want to turn down a good opportunity. I love projects. I love all of like that thing on the side. And maybe that's just where I'm supposed to be is I can pursue all of my things on the side that I love that are things I actually want to be working on without all the BS of a job. Maybe that isn't an archive where I'd have to do crap I don't care about. And now it's just like, I get to just funnel all of my love into things I want to do versus crap I have to do. Right. right. And maybe like, will you be able to monetize? It would be the question. You know, all... <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Ray, go ahead. Sorry. I didn't no, mean that's fine. No, I'm, I, you know, I, Allie and I are the same, but I tend to take like jobs and, or like things that I'm passionate about that aren't quite in my realm. Right. Or like what people wouldn't think are in my realm. And then I also started to, I had to start saying no to things because I really didn't have time. And then I went from always working pickup gigs, either like in archival spaces and, and library spaces and other, th and I've done everything, like worked in a store and taught swim lessons to like having a full-time job. And I didn't know what that felt like to have like, I work in a, a school an elementary school library, which has been crazy to do that as my first year during the pandemic was wild. But how tired, I never realized how tired I would be having one full-time job rather than a bunch of like little jobs that were like five to 10 hours a week or whatever I decided that week. And like how much free time I had where now I have almost in some ways more free time, but I'm more tired. Yeah, yeah. Like you, so you can't enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, yeah and, and the requests don't stop. Everyone's always like, want, everyone wants a piece of you. So. Yeah, like I, I you know, I serve on my city's historical commission and I'm the only trained historian slash librarian archivist on there. We have a library liaison, but like, I'll warn you, Allie, if you join an organization like that, it's like a lot of meetings, not a lot gets done. And then you being the youngest person, because those things are run by older, usually white women in this country. It's like, you end up doing, I end up doing so much more than everyone else. And then there's so many projects I wish I could do for them that are more historical, more archival, that just can't be done because I'm the only one doing any of the other stuff. Like, you don't have I the power. You, you know, you, you haven't been, you, you haven't been given the power to move those other projects that you want along and you'll never be given that power. You're going to have to fight for that power and wait for some people to die in order to get that power. So in that yeah. respect, it's very much like higher ed. Yeah. Or the history department at Wayne State. I mean, where you've got a lot of committees that meet all the time that never accomplish a darn thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Never accomplish a thing. But we're always meeting and people are always listing a stupid committee on their CV. Yeah. But I, you know, I want I want a new standard where it's sort of like, tell us what you did on the committee. Right. 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 Did you just yeah. meet? What initiative did you put forward? So I think I think Ray's right. And the other thing that happens is that as soon as you demonstrate competence, yeah. that is when they will not let you rest. Yeah. Right? It's like but, but you still won't have power. Right. You'll right. have a lot of work. You'll be busy, but you won't have power yeah. to focus on that you really want to advance the initiatives that you're really passionate about. Right. You'll be put in service of other people's. Right 
passion projects and their interests. So the question becomes like, how do you sort of negotiate that? How do you work that? Um, and if you can't work it within the existing organization, do you leave? Yeah, no, it, and it's really hard because I'm from, like I'm, I live with my parents. And so when I moved back to go to Wayne State, I like joined because I'd been on this commission as, as a high schooler. And so some of the people knew me, but not really, I mean, not much because I'd been away for years. And then I came back and they were like, see, and like, when I first started, I would record the meetings and then do the minutes. And then I just started taking minutes during the meetings. But then it's like, oh, they don't have a social media presence. Well, I'll start the social media presence. Oh, you have a speaker series that no one comes to? Well, I'll put a speaker series together. And then an interesting topic that I think we would be fun to discuss with you. It's like, so I live in, I'll, I'll say where I live. I live in Novi, which is, you know, a suburban community and has like lots of diversity, but also not a lot of diversity in a lot of ways. And so we recently had our chairperson is also on the library board and they had a Juneteenth meet like meeting and, and panel um, and with her from, and she's a former representative and they were upset about the fact that she's on the historical commission and we don't do more about different like populations and and things like that whereas like it took me over a year to get our speaker series like up and running and i always work to try to have like different speakers from different backgrounds that do different histories but like they're the stuff in the context of novi and i'm like i i have to bring speakers in that talk about michigan roughly about you know oakland county there's not so much about Novi yet because we haven't put we'd have to put the talks together and then if you're going to talk about Juneteenth in the context of Novi you can't there is there isn't anything really let's like, be honest right and that that's something you have to be able to, to say yeah. to people in a nice in like a positive way saying like I bring in you know speakers that talk about African-American history I bring in speakers but we're not going to find a Juneteenth story or necessarily like an African-American story in Novi. It's just I mean, or you would. Exactly. It's going to be. Let's talk about that, right? right. Which, they're, which they're also not going to like. Who's, yeah, who's living here? When did they move here? Why? And like, what's the barriers of living in this community and stuff? So, and she was all like upset about it. And I was like, I can only do so much for the people I reach out to, to give talks and the, and, and things like that. If we want to tell this story, like I, I can't do all of this. Right. But and you, but you could hire someone <laughs> full time. Yeah. Who does. Right. And so, you know, and so part of that is what I'm going to say is that that's never going to end. Mm. So I think it's so, I think you've got to sort of figure out like how to, how to know that that's the game that people are going to run on you and with you and then figure out how you're going to respond and how you can be honest with yourself and with organizations about what you can and cannot do. Everything isn't yeah. for everyone. Juneteenth right. isn't for everyone. I know that it's sort of popular and that people want to get in on it, but there's also kind of like a lazy half-ass sort of commemoration surrounding this yeah. quote-unquote holiday that no one really wants to talk about, at least not honestly and right. so you know I think 
in terms of they want more diversity, they need to account for their actual history, why it's not there. Well, and if you want, I mean, our whole panel, we are losing our one person of color because she's moving away, which, you know, people move for all, all sorts of reasons. And there was someone who, you know, we, we're up every three years. And there was someone who's on the com commission with me now who was like up for reappointment and then there was an another vacancy. So this other woman was in interviewing. We have a lot of Asian Indian population in our community. And this woman was from that background and said like, I'd love to be on this commission and, and like reach out to those communities. They've been here a long time, you know, all sorts of generationally and stuff. And like, they didn't put her on the commission. And I'm like, well, maybe that now there's another opportunity. We have someone who's unfortunately leaving we can, you know, see what happens. And it's also, we, we, we can never keep men on the commission. And when we do have them, they really don't do much. So, I mean, I think that's a gender thing. I'll say it, Kadava. I'll say it. It's totally. <laughs> but I think that maybe this is your moment to like use your privilege and like your position on the committee to leverage it and be like, you know, I do a lot of work for this committee. We need someone of color. Let's reach out to her who's already established her interest, who already has great ideas to get her to be a part of this because we need someone like her. Right. And she's going to bring in programming. Mm -hmm. She's going to bring in an audience. She's going to bring in a potential support system. And you actually get more support from the community when your institution reflects their experience. Yeah. So you get potential donations, right. you get potential memberships, you get attendance at events when you're actually inclusive. And what museums have been sort of struggling with is acknowledging that reality. The one to acknowledge, you know, the ones whose events, whose commemorations reflect the larger community in which they reside actually do quite well. And that was something that Detroit Historical had to realize and accept. Mm -hmm. Their attendance had a significant boost when they stopped their racist bullshit, yeah. right? You know, and when they started to, like for the 67 event, um, for their 67 exhibit, when they invited community response. And so you, what I can tell you is that from Detroiters, longtime Detroiters that I know, when they saw that the Detroit Historical was inviting people to tell oral histories, they're like, Detroit Historical? Like the racist ass Detroit Historical is inviting everyone to tell stories? Yeah. And so like, I would send the information, they would be like, huh. Right. But what they did was they would go and get their grandparents or they'll get their parents and say, come tell your story of 67. And their grandparents were like Detroit historical. But then, but then, but then when they saw that Detroit historical actually cared and actually wanted their stories, they're like, okay, I will tell my story. And then they went to the exhibit. Hmm. But, you know, early on, you know, people were like Detroit historical is doing 67. You know, that's going to be a whole bunch of racist nonsense. Right. right. And, and so what Detroit historical had to do was to make a case. Hmm. Right. They didn't have to go and do a mea culpa, but they had to make a case for inclusiveness in the in the way they told that 67 story and actually actively reaching out to different audiences or to what had been to them up until that point, a very different audience. So I think that that's some of the work that you can do, even with the programming. Why not, you know, if you can invite people from those other sort of Asian backgrounds for events or speakers to talk about like that history? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then that could be the sort of introduction to say, you know what we really need? Someone from this background on the commission. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Yeah. It's a shame you have to play those games, but. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's really interesting because it's, you know, it's, it's a, it, we're very lucky because most organizations like ours don't have funding from like the cities, right? They, they have like don small donations, but we have, we're like a line item in the city budget. Right. And we rarely use all of our money. Right. We use a certain amount to help the library buy certain um, access to uh, databases. We like partner with them. And then my speaker series, which I'm like building up again. Right. I will say, and I think it's changing now, but I will say I used to avoid um, university like professors as speakers, like the plague because they're jerks well that and they won't fill out paperwork so like the yeah. city requires me to send like five or six forms that like must be filled out if you're going to be paid your like you know your honorarium yeah or whatever yeah and like it includes like a workman's comp form like if it was my choice you i wouldn't fill out these forms either right. but like that's what the city requires me to do a right. contract um, a description, a workman's comp, and a W whatever nine or whatever. Right. right. But the and, people it, and it has to be notarized. She didn't yeah, add it. Work, has oh, to be notarized. Yeah, that's. I mean, you you just lost me at having it notarized. I mean, <laughs> I you know, know, like I, you know, I would be the person who's like, uh, it's a wrap. That's and it. So too like, much. I've got people like I have like certain people on my list for this next year, and I'm like, I'm never gonna hear. I'm gonna have to find new people because I try to get all my stuff ready in the summer so right. that just, the checks just come as right. the speakers arrive and I just right. pick them up for them. But it's like, if you don't get back to me, I'm going to find someone else to fill that spot. Yeah. And a lot of times, or like, if, if you're not a professional speaker, like that's not part of your job. Right. Like I've got storytellers that I reach out to reenactors. And again, they, they, they tend to mostly be white. I yeah. work really hard to reach out to other groups, but I never hear, I don't hear stuff back because they don't yeah. have like a speaker bureau. Right, right. It, it's or, yeah, you know, Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, the thing is, is that with academics who are used to giving those talks, we are used to filling out that paperwork. Like you have to apply for a job at NYU in order to get your honorarium for this one thing that you're doing, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just sort of like, really? But it is, and it is frustrating, but the the on, the the having it notarized is taking it to the next level. But I think what you can do is when you invite people, you invite them and you say, if they express interest, what you say is, now I'm gonna prepare you right now. Yeah. A boatload of forms. And I apologize in advance, but this is the only way this can go for it. So you at least let them know, right? Yeah, I in try advance. to tell yeah. them to like, this isn't necessarily the case, but I'm like, if you fill these forms out now, you'll be approved by the city and you can make partnerships with other organizations. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's, it's great work that you're doing. And I think what you can also do is sort of see if you can talk to people in the community from different backgrounds, or you can host an event where you invite communities to come in and share their Novi stories and yeah. reach out to certain, reach out to marginalized groups to sort of say, we want to hear your stories too. Right. But, you know, but we like your guidance. So maybe it could be like an exhibit. Maybe it's a book display for one of the sort of celebratory or commemorative months. Yeah, but you reach out to them and say, "What are the Novi stories that you think we should be telling?" Right, and then when you know that 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 gives them a stake in the story. Yeah, no, yeah. I like that a lot. We yeah. um, yeah, we have a two talks that are like prepared that we we can give as a commission, which costs right. us nothing, right? And then, um, but they're both on one's on an art park and an artist that used to live in Novi, and the others this like old amusement park that used to be there. 
And so yeah. we've developed those, but it'd be good to develop something else. Yeah, and, 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 and with the diversity in the community, if you tap it, you probably have a lot of talent there too. Yeah. You know, and so like, but it's the, they don't know that you're interested unless you reach out and express interest. Right. Um, and if they are interested, they may not know who to talk to, but you can sort of create that space for them. So I guess yeah. I should ask, are we in the formal interview conversation? Like we yeah. kind of jumped in, but I wasn't sure like, That's we what our, always our, record, but we like to just jump in because I think we always find we get more authentic conversations and a lot of the good stuff is okay. stuff we don't plan or, you know, write down questions. Yeah. So. Right, right, right. No, I'm just, just making sure. You're good. <laughs> so like, I guess this is kind of going off of like, cause this is a question I had. I've been listening to your podcast. I love it. It's beautiful. I wasn't surprised in the slightest that it's beautiful, but it is beautiful and I love it. And you interviewed Tara Hunter and I love to join my freedom. So I'm so excited to get to that episode. But like, kind of like what we're talking about with like guests and interviewees, you know, um, could you tell us, I guess, first, a little bit about what the podcast is about. And then second, you know, when you were choosing to do the interview and narrative format, did you know all the people you interviewed or did you sort of cold call and like cross your fingers and prayed at nighttime that they like called you back? Okay. Seizing Freedom is a docudrama exploring the history of African-Americans um, taking and making freedom during the Civil War and Reconstruction, or at least that's the focus that we had for season one. We've been renewed for season two. Yay! Uh, thank you. Um, so it originally started as eight narrative episodes, but part of what happened is that VPM that's the, they used to be called Virginia Public Media, but they are the ones who are essentially taking care of the show, um, paying for the show. Um, and they've got the IP, which I'm going to try to get a little bit of for in my contract negotiations for season two. Um, but what VPM wanted to do was to create a podcast shop. So producing a lot of podcasts. And what they started doing was reaching out for partnerships. And they reached out to Stitcher and Stitcher said, if we agree to a partnership, we need more than eight episodes. And so what people were thinking about on the team was maybe partnering the interview episode, excuse me, the narrative episodes with interview episodes. And so what we had to do was think about who might we want to interview. And I had a general list of potential people who might, you know, if we were going to um, played the interview episodes after the narrative episode. So interspersed them, narrative, interview, and narrative, interview. Um, I had an idea of some people we might reach out to. Um, and a lot of them were people I already knew or whose work I knew. And But we hired this fantastic, young, Egyptian-American uh, um, podcaster. She's a... Um, She's an interview producer and she works for one of her um, jobs was on the Hidden Brain show. And so she came in and when we hired her on, she had a completely different vision. And so she had different ideas for different guests. And so um, you, if you haven't listened to our interview with Kelly Brown Douglas, 
you know, what Kelly Brown Douglas is someone I kind of knew about on the periphery, but Lushik had heard um, and had seen interviews with her and she said, we must bring her on. Mm. So we had like a general list of potential historians, but what we were supposed to be doing was bringing on people who could speak to the present day. And as you all know, historians are better about talking about the past than the present. And so a lot of times the interviews got sort of wrapped around the axis of the past instead of coming forward to the present. Mm. But actually, I think it worked out because the history we were telling is so new and foreign to a lot of people that it made sense to have historians come on and tell some of these stories. Now, for a lot of the historians, as I said, I either knew them, having met them at conferences, um, or I was really familiar with their work and they're with, and, you know, and they were familiar with mine. Rhiannon Giddens was someone, you know, a member, one of the producers said, what if we could get Rhiannon Giddens given her work? And I just sort of melted in the closet saying, yes, <laughs> yes. And so we had, you know, we had, we went through the channels, we reached out and she agreed to, um, she agreed to do the interview. And so we had to arrange it with her in Ireland. Oh my God. That's where she, yeah, that's, that's where she, um, was riding out the pandemic with her family. And so we were able to sort of do that for those episodes. Um, and I think you can tell the difference between the scholars whose work I knew and the scholars I know now. Um, I think there's like a, there's a sort of different feel for the interview. Um, and then I also had to get more comfortable with interviewing. Like what we haven't talked about is how I go from a traditional historian to hosting a docudrama yeah. and all that that entails with writers and producers and me leading the historical research and kind of, you know, sort of being very clear about the kinds of stories I thought it was important to tell. Right. Because oftentimes when people talk about the history of reconstruction, they tell it from the top down and not from the bottom up. Or when they tell it from the, supposedly from the bottom up, you don't really gain a sense of actual people. You have the sort of general masses. And I was really clear, like I already knew some of the stories. I was like, we must have spots with rice. We must have these people. We must have this person, this person. We must tell these kinds of stories. So what we were able to do was to sort of, in telling a docudrama, you need what they call tape. And those are the stories from the archives. Mm -hmm. As opposed to the narration, my part. So you have to let the narration, uh, excuse me, let the tape or the primary sources drive the story and then write the narrative around it. So that's part of what we did. And so like, I had to get comfortable with that, being in a recording booth, listening to my own voice, which I hate. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also having this amazing interview on uh, this amazing uh, narrative coach with one of the uh, associate producers who was fantastic. We had to work together it was a struggle in the beginning, but then we had to sort of like what we learned from each other was what we needed in to sort of deliver what we ultimately wanted, what we thought was good. So we had a lot of retakes, a lot of retakes, um, a lot of the sort of producer surprise about the story. And then, you know, I would go off in a rant and say, but you don't know the half of it. And here's all of this other stuff. So I kept them surprised and shocked and devastated by the actual history being even more complicated than what we were telling on the show. I was going to ask about like along those lines, it doesn't sound like it, but was it ever a concern of yours that like the historical integrity would get lost along the way? Like as far as like coming from that academic background and the way that 
papers and books are approached and then this new media that's kind of like a little quicker, a little snappier and how that would fit in. Well, it wasn't a concern of mine because I'm a historian, I'm the lead historian, I'm the lead scholar on the project. And so I was going to be the person to hold the line. But, you know, it really didn't, it didn't matter that much because there wasn't that much of a desire or interest in taking creative license. Okay. What we, you know, what we did have to do, because this is, it is the actual story we're starting with, uh, in some cases, if we didn't know the archive, which a lot of, or I knew a lot of the archives, but I didn't know all of them, we were starting with scholarship. So we would go into, for example, we would go into Tara Hunter's To Join My Freedom and go into that chapter and say, where did she get this, right? And then we'd go and find the original source ourselves, read it, and then pull from it relevant material that we thought was important. So there wasn't much sort of like, any, there wasn't much or any making up the mm. stories that we told. We told the stories as are presented in the archives and the actual scholarship. Okay. But, but there were times where we would have to sort of bend a story, you know, to sort of like, or sort of like, we didn't have an actual letter from a person, but we had someone describe the letter from a person. And so, but the way you hear it in the show is that it comes from that person. But right. in the credits, we explain, we didn't actually have this letter. We had X, Y, and Z, you know, to just sort of like hold the line. Mm -hmm. Because what I knew and what I know is that bloody historians are going to listen to the show, right? Mm -hmm. And they would be the main ones to be like, uh, excuse me, right? And I made a point to the team. It's like, I don't want to have to deal with their drama, right? We can't, you know, if, if one of the producers or one of the writers wanted to do X, I'm like, no, nope, I'm not dealing with that drama. So unless we have 20 minutes to unpack this, we should either leave it out or we should just give a quick explanatory comma. Okay. So, I had to go, so I had to go from that. And what I can tell you is that what the team says is that I played a role as a producer that isn't traditional for producers, hmm. which they said it worked out in a good way because, or I played a role as a host, excuse me, which isn't typical for a host. Right. Yeah. Because the, I, I don't listen to many now. I've got like gone into more like popular podcasts and stuff about food or whatever. But I used to listen to some history ones and they were produced by like, you know, different companies and things. And they would have different, like if you listened to older episodes, there was different people on them and then newer ones. And I always wondered like who was doing the research and who was, because you know, they were like popular media companies that were producing them. Right. And they were fat, great fun stories to listen to, but it was never clear. And that, so that makes sense. But right. I feel like, so, like a great job of like holding the line. And I think, you know, you say this, but it makes so much sense when you listen to the show because you can, because I've taken class with you, I can feel your like writing when you're telling the narrative but I can also feel you there in the interview. And I think that you did a really great job. And I think you with Crystal, is it Feimster or Feimster? Feimster. With, with Crystal Feimster, you know, when you guys have that honest conversation about white civil war historians pushing back against you guys being in the same era, those are the people who are going to come at your show and be like, that's not right. That's not true. And so, you know, while, you're not the traditional host you needed to fill that role or the show would have just been destroyed and I think your touch and your balance gives it that credibility it needed to not face the infinite twitter wrath of those 
humans. Yeah. We had writers, but I went in and said, nope, not this. There were a lot of, nope, not this. Um, nope, can't do that. Um, and, you know, and, you know, and actually wrote some of the scripts myself. Right. And so I had a much, I had a much greater say than your average host does um, in these shows. And what it turned out is that, you know, I've been working kind of as a producer, but not formally as a producer, but I'll be stepping up as a producer in season two. So I'll be host and um, one of the producers for the show. Um, but that's because I played a non-traditional role, you know, I served, yeah. you know, in a non-traditional capacity as a host, having a much greater say in the story that we told, even right. when it came to like the interview episodes. So what Lushik did was she went and she looked for how they were in interviews and she would generate questions and they would always be questions that would make sense, but they were not where I as a historian st would start. Right. They're where the sort of general public might start. And they're the kinds of questions that would really interest a general audience and not the typical, you know, where a historian would start. So we happen to work really well together. Um, and there were some interviews where it's just sort of like, as we were preparing for the interviews, I would just go in and just write all of these questions out. And Lushik would sort of look at it and say, yeah, that seems about right. I'm going to change this around a little bit. And so it worked out, but I had to, I had to grow into that. You know, I had to grow into the interviewing, uh, interviewing my peers. I feel like I got stronger over time. Um, but in the beginning, like during the Rhiannon interview, I was terrified. She was lovely and amazing, you all. She was absolutely lovely and amazing. But I was sitting in this closet at eight o'clock in the morning, like, oh my God, I well, have but interview. For Rian, for it must have felt so unreal because like, Ray, you've never taken a class with Kadata, have you? No, unfortunately. Okay. I heard Best class. I knew Sierra really well and, and everyone. <laughs> but like, so what Kadata does that I think is really great is she puts songs on the syllabus to really get you in the place. And that's like, Rhiannon Giddens is like this artist who does like African-American heritage songs and her songs will make you cry and they will hurt yeah. you but her voice is so beautiful and I can just imagine Kanata that when like she agreed and that you're doing this you're like this is so unreal to me because you've been like teaching her songs for years completely unreal and like how to bring that you know how to come into the interview as a fan yeah also as a historian you know who used her work who you know who exposed her um who you know I exposed my students to her work and you right. know, explain like, how it resonates with them. So the so the beauty of her music is that it takes you it takes you right there to the, it takes you back to the past, and that's one of the many things that I love about her music, which is why I share it with everyone, uh, any chance I get. So I you know I had to grow I had to get more comfortable with doing the interviews. Um, and that only came over time and with practice. Uh, but I feel like by the end, by the last interview, I was like, I got this, I'm ready. Um, and I also have like a greater sense of comfort with my role as host, with my role as writer for the show. Um, this is a whole different medium. One I did, you know, I love podcasts. I love to listen to them. But what I will tell you is that when they reached out, I was like, uh, no. Here are five people who would be great for this show. Right? Oh my gosh! Which is my response to everything. Uh, and no, like, I can't imagine so that. 
I was like, I don't think you mean me. And uh, what the producer said is, yes, Kanata, we mean you. And so what I had to do was I had to do like an informal tryout. So I had to go through the script and, you know, they said, you know, you can, you know, you can revise the script. So, you know, I went to town on the script. The script was amazing. The pilot was fantastic. It was lovely and amazing. But there were like little slips. There were misses. I was like, but the act what actually happened is much more interesting. And so I rewrote material in there. And apparently I did, you know, apparently they liked that. Um, and so I got, and so I was hired for the position. Um, but I had to grow into it. It wasn't something that I was immediately comfortable with. And I also had to wonder and consider what are all my peers going to think about, especially the people who think that history is only, the only history that matters is in a university press or in an academic journal. And what I had to do was to be honest with who I am as a historian. And I see the value in both academic work and public work, because I can tell you that, you know, everyone's trying to write things like op-eds today, but how many people like op-eds are for a really select audience, you know, like the highly educated audience, those are the more likely to be people who are reading op-eds that other academics write. And what I knew was that I wanted to reach a much larger audience than that. And I read a lot of op-eds, but ask me how many of them I actually remember. Right. Uh, especially, you know, in light of all of the other reading I'm doing, but I wanted something that I put out that had a much more lasting impact that could sustain the sort of education and reach a much broad, broader audience. So what I eventually decided was that this matters more mm. or this matters to me. Right. So even if it doesn't matter to some of my peers, it matters to me. And what I realized is that a lot of my peers got it and have it wrong, right? So what I can tell you is that we, you know, several several hundred thousand downloads later. Yeah. You know, um, and having, you know, teachers and people whose families are connected to this history reach out and say, I'm listening to this podcast. I'm having my mom and dad listen to this podcast. I'm assigning this podcast to my students. That matters a lot to me. It's not an either or as an academic historian or a popular historian. I think you can do both. I have something to say. I have something to produce for both audiences. But I had to sort of like reckon with the reality that there were going to be historians who might be in their feelings about this kind of work. Mm. But I came down on the side that I think it matters even if other people don't. And I also know that given the response of other historians, that other historians think it matters too. And I care more about what they think than what some of the others don't. Because I also know that there's also a little bit of hate going on too. Yeah, I would think that given the way things are going in academia in relation to how people we've interviewed on this podcast and in, in popular culture and the a spotlight on this type of history and things that those people who are your detractors or potential detractors are actually just jealous that they weren't asked to do something like this on whatever, whether they're in the same field or a different field. Right. That, they, that they're sitting there being like, well, why don't I get asked to be a podcast, do a podcast? Right, but see what they won't say, but see, they won't say that. What right. they'll say is, podcasts they don't really matter that's for the great masses you know right. what they'll do is sort of dismiss it and right. sort of try to minimize it but when they're asked to do these kinds of things we're supposed to all shout it from the rooftops right yeah you know what right. you know uh you know like you know one as soon as they get in 
if they ever get in, what they do is like suddenly it becomes important because they have managed to do it. And I think what I had to realize early on is that that's what was going on. Now, I knew that in advance. That didn't stop me from doing the show because what I had what I had to do was sort of, can I do a podcast? And, you know, I'm asking my friends and my, my family, I'm like, can I do a podcast? And they're like, yes, you can. You yeah. say yes to the show. And I thought, well, why not? Right. And, right. and so I'm glad I trusted my instincts in terms of why not. Mm-hmm. Um, but dealing with this sort of the sort of negative reaction, like I know what that's all about. Right. But I care much more about reaching a broader audience because the people who would devalue a history podcast that's written from the archives and from the scholarship don't value a larger public knowing history or this history. Right. So I'm not really that invested in their opinions on this. But I, it's one of those things where you just kind of have to be aware of potential negative reactions and people trying to use it against you or penalize you for this kind of work because that is a reality Mm. in academia that is how small and petty um people can be within this uh within this uh, profession within this industry sort of larger academia and within history do you think that your hesitation came from like a time thing or like the academic thing or like was it like you know partially imposter syndrome or do you think it was like a combination of like all three like you were like I don't know if I have the time like you just said like can I host a podcast can I do this or like you know or brand new I mean it was all of the above yeah you know I mean like in terms of the imposter syndrome I think it was mostly the conversation that I had with Crystal which is why I insisted on having that conversation with Crystal right the you're not a civil war historian right Mm -hmm. and but so also being honest with myself it's like I am but of the black people right so I can't you know so it was sort of me being honest with myself about knowing what I bring to the table I am an African-Americanist. I do study the history of people in the Civil War and Reconstruction, Black people in the Civil War and Reconstruction. I have taught classes at Wayne State on the Civil War and Reconstruction, sort of general history of the Civil War and Reconstruction. My second book is on African-Americans attacked by the Klan during Reconstruction, so why not? I know the archive, I know the history, but I also have a sense of the ways that the historical profession has missed this story. Um, and so I said in our initial conversations, because the original show was an idea of Ed Ayers. Mm. And so Ed had all of this archival material that he thought, well, you know, why not do a docudrama uh, on African-Americans or on the Civil War era? And one of the producers said, yes, um, let's do it, but let's find, you know, a host, et cetera. So in our meetings, Ed was part of our meetings. He was our executive producer. He and I would go back and forth over, Ed would have a sort of the crashing symbols history of the Civil War and Reconstruction. And I would go right to the local, right to the ground to find the individual people and say, well, we need to tell this story. We need to tell that story. We need to show that freedom is a process. It's not an event. And we need to slow this narrative down. And so that happened in our pre-production meetings. And in the, from those pre-production meetings, I, grain, I gained a greater sense of confidence with, yes, yes, I can tell the story. I am one of the people to tell the story. But the other part was the sort of dealing with and being honest about whether or not I wanted to be bothered with the petty jealousies, you know? <laughs> Is this something else I want to have to deal with? And, you know, 
something else I have to deal with on top of the other things I have to deal with uh, being a Black woman in the academy um, right. and particularly in the history profession. And so what I ultimately decided is what I told you all. It's just sort of like, I just don't have time for that. Yeah, just block it out. It's not worth your energy. Yeah, and as long as I'm doing good, as long as I'm doing professionally research history, as long as I'm being true to the archive and I'm respecting the work of the scholars who are out there, people are going to say what they're going to say. And I just can't be too invested in that. Mm -hmm. And I operate in that respect in all of these other areas of my life, but it crept up again. And even in terms of my work, but it crept up again with the show. Like it was, it was something that I don't, I didn't really deal with in other areas of my life, but there it was right there for the show. I can't host a podcast, right? But obviously I can't. Yeah, you're doing great. Oh, Thank it's you. amazing that Allie, you have to listen to it. Yeah, I love no, it. No, I'm going, I, I, um, yeah, I go on like periods where like I'm only listening to certain ones and then I'm like, I need a new one now. Right. I mean, well, I can tell you, I love what are they uh true crime for a time oh, yeah. i went through a true crime uh bent and then the root of evil broke me of true crime that story i'm done no more true crime for me i have um, right now it, i'm listening so. to i'm Don't? not saying you should <laughs> okay all right but i get I, I won't go into details so. you know i'll pass yeah, i don't think it's for you i don't think it's for okay, you that's fine yeah that's uh, fine. just there was just one episode I was like, oh, nope. I kept listening to the end, but it was just sort of like, this is not my space. I should not be here. Um, and so right now I'm listening. So I listen to a lot of like, hist I listen to a lot of news related podcasts. Um, I'm listening to Focus on This, which is about sort of productivity, which is really interesting. Um, they sell a lot of products, which I don't think you have to buy the products, but their ideas about how to focus on goal setting Oh, but the difference between achievement goals versus habit goals. Oh, yeah. Which is something I hadn't thought about. So I am now installing new habits for life, not just for work, but for life. So I listen to a lot of shows, but what listening to shows sort of, I think, especially the story-based shows, the narrative-based shows, is I think it gives you a different sense of how to be a storyteller mm. that might serve both of you well in terms of any projects you may work on. So right now I'm listening to The View from Somewhere, hmm. which is an episode on sort of like ethical journalism for the present moment. Oh, wow. So, you know, I think they're at the end of the show, but I'm at the beginning of it and it's raising really interesting questions. But the storytelling devices are really interesting. And as someone who is hosting and then writing a podcast, it just makes you more attuned to narrative, how you tell a story, et cetera, and interesting ways you can do that. So... Yeah. No, I consume probably too much media as far as like podcasts and television go. Like I'm, I'm up on like all the TV shows and then someone will, I'm always surprised when someone says one I haven't seen and then I write it down and I'm like, I got to see that obsessed. Someone recently asked me like, if I could have, be an expert in anything, like just anything in the world and like, what would it be? And I was like, cinema and film if I was like a renowned world-renowned expert in cinema and film because I love the movies <laughs> I, I used to love the movies but then they started redoing everything and then they've got yeah. all of these sequels and I'm just sort of like that's it for the movies for me I'm watching tv <laughs> yeah well t yeah tv is um is really interesting narrative format because you can 
tell really long stories over a period of time that, but the people watching it don't feel like it's long because right. it's short, like one hour episodes and stuff. Right. Or if you binge, I mean, yeah. like I love international shows. Yeah. Not English shows. I'm all in. I have, I watch everything, everything. I'm not discriminating. I, you know, especially like German shows, Nordic shows, Swedish yeah. shows, Australian shows, German shows, you name it. I'm watching it. We watch all the British crime shows, all the British like police shows and crime shows and murder shows. You should check out the French shows too. Yeah. Oh yeah. The French, that was my language. Of Some course. of them are a little bit poorly written and poorly acted but some of them are really good like spiral I think is really good that set the sort of gold standard for me um with the other ones I just seem to watch even though they're bad uh and then even when the second season comes on I was like oh you were bad but let me see what you're doing this season and I will watch the entire season did you watch Lupin Lupin it's still, it's in my queue. And I don't know why I keep hesitating around it. Maybe it's because I'm watching things like, was it Ragnarok? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like, you know, I'm watching that um, and some other shows. So I'm going to get to it, but it's kind of behind Season some of the other shows. just came out, but I like watched it with my mom. So I have to wait. I'm not with, I'm not in, in Michigan right now. So I have to yeah. wait to watch it with her, but it's so good. That's what everyone says. Like it's so it's in it's 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 actually it's in the added. It's there. Yeah. Netflix says, "Do you want to watch this next?" I'm like, "No, I got something else on you know in priority." So and I and I, and I subscribe to Acorn and BritBox. Oh yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. So yeah. All right. So other questions for me, y'all, about being a historian, about doing a podcast, about teaching, about research writing. Yeah, um, I have my second book is. Done-ish. Okay. I'm starting my third book. <laughs> that was, that's, so that was going to be like, my question is like, so, you know, I guess these like go together is, can you tell us like what season two is going to be about like of the podcast? And is that getting in the way of your book? Cause weren't you going to transition from reconstruction into like Detroit in like the second half of the 20th century? And is that like totally derailed now? Like, like what's going, what are you working on? <laughs> Everything. Um, so Me too. the second Me too. season, <laughs> yes. So the second season for Seizing Freedom is coming forward in time. So we're looking at roughly, I want to say the 1890s to like 1920s. Uh, what, one of the things we're going to do is that for season one, we felt the need to tell a deeper story of the Civil War and Reconstruction. So we were much more comprehensive um, but in the second season, we're not feeling compelled to do that. So we're doing more narrative-based stories. So we're going to follow several people in several different points in time to show like how they're seizing freedom during Jim Crow. Okay. So really, I really, really, really wanted you to out Stone Mountain and all those annoying people. I mean, so part of, I think the part of the challenge is that we don't want to tell the stories that everyone's necessarily talking about. So this came up in one oh, of the God. discussions today. Like, do we, you know, do we, do we talk about Tulsa? And I said, no, we don't talk about Tulsa. We talk about the Elaine riot, right? Yeah. To take, you know, to sort of give it, use any opportunity to um, better educate the audience over history they may not already know. I feel like with Tulsa, with the, you know, with the 100th uh, anniversary, you know, everyone who know everyone who wants to know about Tulsa can find out about Tulsa. Mm -hmm. So not 
necessarily interested in telling some of the exact same stories or telling some of the stories that people are familiar with, but in a different way. So one of the stories we're going to tell is with the great debate at the turn of the century over how to fight and live under Jim Crow. But instead of only centering Du Bois and Booker T. Washington, we're centering William Monroe Trotter. Oh, cool. You know, so, you know, so Du Bois, Ida B. Wells and Booker T. Washington are there. Yeah. But the episode is really built around Trotter and his radical vision for freedom and how who wins the debate is going to play a role in shaping the destiny and shaping future fights, the fights that are coming up for the 20th century for civil rights. And so that's one of the stories we're telling. Another story I think we're telling is, and I shouldn't give it all away, but um, we're going to follow Du Bois to the Paris Exposition Hmm. in 1900. That's super cool. In 1900. Yeah, that's because, yeah, I studied um, European history and stuff. And like, obviously, certain amounts of American history and my undergrad was in political theory. But I remember I got I got out of the Civil War. We had a writing class and they were based on different themes. And I got out of the Civil War writing class that was taught by this professor who taught it for a really long time and people loved it in favor for the 1960s. And the way I did that was I, w- I emailed the professor this long email being like, I know you don't give overrides, but my dad was one of the founding members of SDS. And I, I like grew up knowing all the radicals from U of M. Like, can I be in your 1960s class? So I like loved it. And then later I was like, sometimes I was like, I wonder what that civil war writing class, like what I would have discovered if I'd like chosen something else to do. Right. So right. I'm excited. So- Yeah, so we're telling different stories and that process is happening right now. We had a really long, long production process uh, that I insisted for season two that was shortened. So instead of writing and, you know, for season freedom, I'm glad that you like the show, Allie, but we built the plane as we flew it, Mm. right? And so we finished a wreck, like we're all exhausted, like, and you know, we're exhausted and kind of stabby, like, ah, nothing else can go wrong. No one better ask anything else of me. (laughs) Um, But so, but what, what I pitched and kind of insisted upon and the rest of the team agreed with me was that we would write all of the episodes out before in advance before we even started recording. So because of my teaching schedule that has to happen over the summer. So we are writing right now, and um, I have two and a half of the four scripts I'm taking the lead on drafted. Nice. So I, I hope to draft my third uh, script. So what we're, we're sort of writing and we're exchanging and giving feedback and reworking all of the episodes together. So there'll be eight episodes, but I'm taking the lead on four. And one of the other uh, producers is taking the lead on the other four. So I've got mine almost done. But what I'm also doing to uh, Allie's question is I'm also writing. So I drafted the first chapter of my third project, which is on uh, the recent history of rape in Detroit. Mm. Um, And so it's a really complicated, very complicated uh, story, but I've got one of my chapters written and I've already started. I'm about halfway into the second chapter. So I'm hoping that by the end of the summer, I have two, two and a half chapters of the third project drafted. So this is all to say that I can balance the two. And 
what I can tell you is that doing a podcast opens a window and opens opportunities for other projects that are also exciting. And so I'm juggling requests um, and figuring out like the kind of work I want to do, the kind of work I value, the kind of work that won't drain me while also, so I'm figuring this out while I recognize that I only have the same 24 hours in a day as everyone else. Um, But what I can say is that I love the work. I love the work of bringing this history that, you know, most people wouldn't have exposure to unless they had the privilege of attending college. Mm -hmm. And what we know with the rising cost of college, that is a smaller and smaller number. And so having an opportunity to share an underknown or lesser known history with the larger public is fulfilling, especially doing it using materials from the archives, having these amazing voice actors voice the stories that we tell. It's really sort of inspiring and it gives me energy. But I also have that same kind of energy and passion for my own scholarship, which as Allie having taken a class with me, she knows like I love to write. I love to research and write. And so it's work that I love. And I'm, you know, I feel grateful that I'm able to do it. Um, wait, wait, can I, can I out you here? Sure. She likes to read. She likes to write. She doesn't want to read your papers. She wants you to do something else. <laughs> I want you to listen because I mean, yes. I mean, so what, what I can tell you is that, um, Part of it is also knowing that when students tell their, just like in telling the story of season freedom, you're going to tell your story in a different way when you're thinking about a different audience. Mm. And so my sort of push against papers is that I want Wayne State students to be thinking about a different audience, you know? The audience of five people or 10 people or 20 people in my very narrow field of, so for my first project on lynching, you know, the 20 people, yes, I want to reach them, but I also want to reach an audience the size of season freedoms. But in order to reach an audience the size of season freedoms, I can't tell the same history that I can, that I do in a journal article. And so my, so what I do is I push students to be thinking outside of the box and to think about other, you know, and think about other ways of telling the story, because I know that that will lead to other opportunities. I think I was taking the wrong classes when I was at work. I think you were, definitely, I think you were. I mean, but I, I mean, but I think, but, but I think, I think it's a both and, so I don't want, I don't want people to sort of come away with the idea that I am anti-academic history, because I'm not, but I want Wayne State students to no. be thinking about all of the other opportunities that you know, they may find more fulfilling than an academic paper. Go ahead. And I, I don't think that that's, you know, it was more of a joke than anything else. I don't think that that's the case because I think that you know that the majority of your colleagues are assigning that paper. So you know that in their class, they're getting that. So in your class, you want them to get something else. And to be honest, I loved that. I loved the freedom because it wasn't like, you know, you didn't give any topics. You just said, I want something in this realm. Be free, children. Go pick your own passion. And it did create a lot of passion. It did create a lot of great prods. No, I didn't have any anxiety. Maybe the other kids did, but it created. I think think for some students, there was a sort of like, I can choose my own topic. I can study whatever I want. And yeah. I can tell it to a larger, and I, have to, and I have to tell it to a larger audience. And I'm like, yes, it'll be good for you. 
it'll be good for the world for you to think about different and other ways to tell this, to sort of share your research. I want our students to be thinking about producing documentaries. I want our students to be thinking about producing podcasts that may go on to win awards. I want students to think about like photojournalism. I want students to have all of the opportunities that, that I think they should have access to and that I know that students at other institutions are actually getting because their faculty get it. Their right. faculty understand that they're not all going to academia. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we all know how hard academic life is, right? right? So I think that we do our students a disservice to only give them one pathway to say, the only way you can succeed, the only way you can demonstrate knowledge is through a paper that I as the professor am only, I'm gonna be the only person who reads this. Right. I want students to be thinking about a much broader audience. So I tell students, how would you tell this story to your family? Right. Mm -hmm. You still and, you know, and the, the sort of lazy thinking of academic historians is that that's lighter work, that it's easier work and it's actually harder. Yeah. And it yeah. just sort of reveals their own ignorance and how invested they are in this narrative that the larger public is somehow stupid. Right. And not worthy of their time. That's their own issue. And that's why they stay basic. But I don't want my students to stay that way. I want my students to realize that there are other opportunities and I want them to be out producing history from the larger world. Well, particularly sure. with a program with now, I know it's 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 changed its look slightly in the last year or two years. But with a program that's a ter has terminal masters, I don't think that it fully understood itself for what it had become. Because historically, you know, historically speaking, a lot of terminal master's degrees are for people who are teachers and maybe they, they don't want their master's in, in education, they want it in their subject because they're passionate about it, but they're getting it to get that, you know, master's plus 30 pay in their school job and things like that. But, you know, going through that program, you know, most people weren't, by the time I hit it, like when I said what I was doing to my parents, my mom was like, oh, you're going to be in class with a lot of teachers, like people who are teachers. They're going to take a lot of night classes because that's who gets those types of terminal master's degrees. So when I got there, I was expecting, and I think there's still a few floating around, but for the most part, that's not the case. Right. It's people that are considering a PhD or they just, you know, this is their passion. This is what they want to do and they're going to do it and do whatever it takes to get that degree but they don't necessarily want to be an academic. Right. And so by having projects and things that are tan more ta almost more tangible than a paper um, is much better for those types of people particularly. Right, but I think the challenge becomes if you as a scholar have not done that work, if you devalue that work, how can you provide the kind of training Right. that our students might be interested in and they might find more gainful employment. Mm -hmm. So there's the disconnect there. There's also a serious disconnect down in the major because most of our students are not going into graduate programs, right? That is not their path. But they have a hard time convincing their parents they love history, right? But they don't necessarily want to be academics. Mm -hmm. And because we as a profession and as a department refuse to provide a pathway from degree to job, yeah. right? They can't make, our students can't make a compelling case to their parents why they should be allowed to major in history other than their, the fact that they love it, right? right. And so we do, yeah, and you know, and there's no reason we can't do it, 
right except for a lack of vision and a refusal and sort of clinging to the past like this is the way i did it so everyone else may do it and what i have said and i'm going to be honest to you we are in the process of digging our own graves that thinking is digging our own graves because students they don't want to take our classes because they are they don't want to do a paper but they may actually be interested in doing a project which as i said requires as much if not more work it also requires different kinds of skills skills that are more marketable that actually translate into jobs the kinds of fulfilling jobs because i don't want our students to just have jobs i want them to have fulfilling jobs with a mindset of opportunities that they may be able to pursue their passions i'm Mm -hmm. doing that in my work you all know i love my scholarship I also love producing this podcast. I want to do future history documentaries, not folding documentaries, little short stories. I want to do that kind of work. I'm passionate about that. And as an academic, you can do both. But some, but some of our students are actually, they want to do that full time. And mm-hmm. I think, why shouldn't they? Right? Why shouldn't a Wayne State student have the same kind of opportunities as a student at the University of Michigan, as a student at Michigan State has, right? right. Wayne State is an inspire as, you know, they're sort of aspiring institutions. They would love to be like X, but they won't actually do some of the things that X, are, you know, that those institutions are doing because they're actually more comfortable with exploring and seeing what works out as opposed to clinging to the comfortable what people have always done, right? But the fact is that the students actually don't want that. I think right. part so of it too is how, like the know, general how do you deal with that? Part of it too is like the general academia thing is it's just like, you know, Karada, we experience this because like I'm building this digital story map of Detroit. And every time I talk about it and anytime I talk about building this map of black owned businesses, anybody in the public, everybody, academic, like just Joe Schmo always are like, are you going to make it bigger? Are you going to include more businesses? And it's like, I would love to. There is no money for me right. as Allie Penn, graduate school, graduate student at Wayne State University. So the option is to, you know, work with an institution, basically give up my baby to somebody else to risk somebody else taking it over and somebody else not hiring me, not giving me, you know, or doing it on the side like I do like I continue to do like devote time to it because I love it because I care about it because it's a passion project and I think that that's a problem within academia and like granting institutions and everyone is it's like you are punishing like you know this field is dying you know that there's issues you know these jobs don't exist stop publishing like punishing Joe Schmo independent academic who has like three side hustles or is only, you know, in an adjunct position, but has these great ideas because you're going to lose those great ideas by not offering us the opportunities to do these things. Exactly. And that, but that's also part of the digging your own grave, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. While also being in denial about the fact that that's what you're doing, right? right? And so there's, and so like there is this tendency to sort of cling to the familiar with what what what's always been done, but that's what's killing us, you know. And so in that respect, we're very much like journalism, right? Mm. You know, there are problems with journalism that are related to the industry and related to money and power, et cetera. But it's also because they've been crappy at their jobs, right? right. We make, you know, I make choices on the media I consume, right? And other people are making choices on the media they consume as well. When you re- when you demonstrate that you're not trustworthy, that mm-hmm. you can't be trusted to present the facts, 
then why should people bother with you? In the history profession, if you can't point students, and some of our students actually, a lot, a good number of our students actually do quite well. But the conversation that no one wants to have is that it's not because of anything that we did, right? It's because right. our students are actually like great at hustling. Yeah. Now, I'm all for the hustle. But I feel like if you've paid for a degree out of your pocket at, from Wayne State, which is what most students have done or are doing, that you should be able to have a much more smoother path to the fulfilling job that you want. It shouldn't just have to be based upon your own, in your degree area, it shouldn't just have to be based upon hustle. But that's because for so many people, the academic path is the only path we know. And I say, if that's the only path you know and you're comfortable with, then fine. Let's bring in some people who have actually pursued paths, you know, in other areas. And let's not bring them in only for the graduate students. Let's bring them in for the undergraduates too. Because you might get a population, you might see numbers of your MA students increase if you actually invested in diversity training or career diversity down in the major right if you could show if you could show, show history majors and minors and their parents this is a path to degree or this is a path to employment beyond academia yeah then you then you're then you're much more lucky i think that people who are advising people to sort of go into phds uh, programs without being honest with them about the realities of the market Right. are doing the students a disservice. But I also know from my conversations with students at Wayne State is that there are students who are completely, there's sort of like a refusal. I refuse to know how bad the academic job market is, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just sort of like, well, I can't help you, man, right? Yeah. If you're just going to bury your head in the reality. And so part of what happens is that it's the comfort. Well, such and such got a job, so I should be able to get a job. I'm taking class with this professor, so that's going to guarantee me a job. That's not how this works, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's actually in your interest to get your PhD, but also acquire the kinds of skills that might actually, and, and figure out what skill sets are yours. Some things are everything came for everybody, right? So you have right. to figure out what's for you and what brings you passion, and then try to get additional training in that so that you can go on in case the academic gig doesn't work out. And that's, again, the thing that people, they don't want to talk about. Most of us who got jobs in the past, I would say 20 years, got them because we were lucky. Mm. Not because we were especially brilliant, and I'm not telling trade secrets, not because we were especially brilliant, but because we happened to graduate from the right place at the right time, right? I completed my degree in 2005, right before the bottom fell out. Right. The bottom was falling as I was finishing my degree. And I could see that in 2003, looking at the job market, in 2004, looking at the job market, and 2005, looking at the job market. The jobs were already dwindling, but I knew how bad the academic job market was in 1998. Mm. When my mentors at Central Michigan University were like, the bottom has fallen out. You may not be able to see it yet, but you need to know this going in. We have an ethical obligation to let you know this. So I knew that going in, but I also saw after I accepted the job at Wayne State, how bad it got Yeah, and stayed. And so when I talk to students about going to graduate school, I really have an honest conversation with them. I feel a sense of 
I feel ethically bound to tell them the realities of the market. Now that's not to discourage them. I don't want them to not pursue PhDs. I don't want to pull up the ladder behind me like a lot of people do. Mm. I want them to know, right? Going in that this is going to be hard, but while you're in here, you should get training and exposure to all the kinds of things that interest you. And branch out, you know, like for students who may take a class with me and I say do a project, some students are like, well, I can't imagine doing a project. I only want to write papers, right? And then they'll produce their first documentary and they're like, I actually kind of like these documentaries. And I'll say, are you going to produce another one? They're like, yes, yes, I am. And it's going to be better next time. Right. And, that's, and that's what I want to hear, right? Yeah. Because, you know, and they wouldn't necessarily only do it for another class. They would do it because it's something they're passionate about. And they realize that's another way to get their stories out. So do you think too that, I would think that all, it would, this would also require a change in, I guess the way I was thinking of it is like timing, like the way that the programs look might have, will have to change too, as to allow people the time to not necessarily explore because mm -hmm. you, you should kind of know where you want to go, but almost to like, have opportunities to take those classes, or even if it's not a class, but it's like a training. Because I felt, and I think others feel too, that there's there's not enough time. And I, you know, in in because you've got so many like certain hoops to jump through in graduate school. And it's or, so expensive. Yeah, it's expensive, and there's certain benchmarks, and then you have like a you also have a time limit that you have to finish by. You know, even if you're taking one class a semester and paying for it as you go. You know, I would think that that would require like massive change in what 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 it looks like to finish that degree. And like, you know, because they'll advertise like different, you know, trainings and things through like email and, and things like that. But it's like, well, I can't do that because I've got to work on this paper. I, you know, it's it's too much. Right. And I think, you know, what we could also do is have more conversations about time management, mm -hmm. because just as graduate students. So just as you said, Ray. Aren't you more busy? You know, you got more time now, but you're more exhausted now with a full-time yeah. job. I can say that as a full-time academic, where's the time? What is time, right? Um, but what I had to learn how to do, and I'll be honest, I didn't really learn it until I came up for tenure, hmm. was how to better manage my time, right? So to work a 40-hour week. Right? right. And to sort of grid it out. Like I, you know, I don't, I'm not an eight to five person. I'm more of a four to, you know, four to 12 uh, person. Yeah. Uh, but that's also why it's like, I don't want people to talk to me after that. Um, but part of it, like I had to learn how to manage my time. Right. And to figure out what I could do and where I was, you know, work, I could better put my time and energy. So I think you're right in terms of having to restructure the program, but I don't think it has to be a complete overhaul. I think it just has to be, what are ways, are there different ways that we could provide students with exposure and yeah. with training um, that suits their needs? One of the things that we get through the pandemic is the, uh, the sort of understanding that there are other ways to sort of do this. And mm -hmm. there might be, you know, what might be a good time. There's a tendency at Wayne State to sort of schedule things during the day, right? when people who are working may not be able to attend. Yeah. But here's the thing, when they schedule things in the evening, the students who say they will attend actually don't attend. Right. And so, you know, the question is, how do you work that out to sort of satisfy the different needs? Is it that you have the event recorded? Mm -hmm. 
And if you had the event recorded, then the burden or the onus is on the student to actually watch the recording to get the training. Right. So I think part of this is that we've got like a complicated, um, not a complicated, but a really diverse population with different needs. Um, but I still think that like, I guess I dream bigger than most people do. I think that things are possible if you're willing to sort of think about ways to make it possible and how to serve the sort of greater good for the majority of our students. And I just don't know that the traditional academic only path is the only way to do that, especially given how diverse our population of students, not only at the graduate level, but also at the undergraduate level is at yeah. Wayne State. Yeah. And the historical profession is already changing, right? This, you know, we still have our issues. We're still a pretty conservative profession, but there are institutions all over the country, you know, who are rethinking their programming, who are rethinking their training of students, in part because they're willing to ask the students, well, what do you want? Right. Right. What do you want? What do you need? And they're willing to sort of, you know, they're courageous enough to experiment and say, well, let's let's float this and see if it works. Mm -hmm. Right. There's a tendency to sort of treat change as if we change one thing, we're never going to be able to change it back. Right. Like it's, it's like it's driving off a cliff. And that's not actually how the world works. Right. Right. You can see whether or not something works. You can rework it to try to like finesse it to smooth out the wrinkles. And then you start then you start all over again, figuring out what else is needed. But there are people who aren't invested in that. You can do that for your job, Allie. You can work at this job for a while and keep yourself open, as she said at the beginning, and you never know. You never, I mean, you don't. I mean, it's, and, and, and the thing is, like, I don't want to minimize your frustration, right, with not being in the job that you want. I want to sort of honor and acknowledge that. I think it's really important. But I also think that that's part of the reckoning that we as a profession mm -hmm. and we as the professions actually have to deal with, right? And what is another or different or better way forward? Right. And I don't necessarily have the answers. I don't necessarily have the answer to that. I'm willing to be in conversation with people who are actually willing to do something. I'm not interested in wasting my time with do nothing. I think that's my new mantra going forward. I'm too busy to be bothered with do nothing. At committee right meetings. Yes, you know. No, you know, got a no piece more. of paper on the camera screen. Like, don't talk if you're not going to do anything. Okay. I mean, okay. do, I mean, you know, do nothing. I mean, you know, but the thing, and so... What I realize is that I can't really control the do-nothings. What I can control is how much time I allow them to suck for my life. Yeah. Um, and so, Allie, the goal is always to not be in that meeting, right? <laughs> right? Uh -huh. I mean, you know, it's, you know, and, 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 it's, and it's a struggle because, you know, there are times you just have to go, you have to bite your tongue and you just have to say, this is going to be yet another waste of my time. Right. This committee is not going to do anything because this committee has never done anything or all of the do nothings are on this committee. So essentially, it's like the what's his name? The guy who said, I'm just here so I won't get fined. Now, it shouldn't be like that. Right. But inevitably, it becomes that way because you have people who are afraid of doing anything because they're so comfortable with where they are personally. And I don't think that that's what justice looks like. I cut. I cut something out of my life and Allie knows I'm so much happier for having just made that decision. <laughs> I mean, Allie's so, also like, 
Ellie's also like, you better not let it be completely cut out of your life because you work too hard for that thing. So I have until 2023 was what I was told. So I'll make a decision later. Yeah. I mean, but I think, I think these are the things that as women, as women professionals, we have to be honest with ourselves about, we have to be thinking about what is actually taking you, what assignment, what project is actually taking you away from your own personal goals in service of the goals of someone else. Yeah. That started to be a question I had to um, answer as I started to get more invitations to work on more projects. And sometimes it was projects in service of other people's goals that had nothing to do with my Mm -hmm. personal goals or my professional goals and so like I had to start making different decisions about where am I going to put like because I only have 24 hours where am I going to put my time and energy right yeah that's and on the committee with do nothings just not a good use of my time and so like I'm also starting to use that language and people are in their feelings about it yeah I'll say this doesn't feel like a good use of my time right or any you know like I have stopped saying anyone's time and revise it to say my time. Yeah. No, I like that. Yeah. Do you want to ask our normal questions at the end, Allie? Of course. So uh, we know you watch a lot of TV, so you'll definitely have to tell us what you're currently binge watching on TV. And then if you're reading anything for fun, what you're currently reading. Uh, I don't have to see. I've been trained so that my producer won't let me keep my phone in the closet. <laughs> I let's see. I can tell you what I last read because I'm writing when I'm writing. I'm in the craziness of writing. I can't read for pleasure. Okay. And I'm also in the craziness of reading for work. So I can't read for pleasure. But the last novel that I read was two weeks ago it was call baby by morgan by morgan jerkins um i'm actually doing a lot of audiobooks yeah so i listen to audiobooks and i will tell you that i completed my goodreads 2021 reading challenge of 45 books yesterday wow the sad part is that only five of them are novels <laughs> i'm working on it i'm working on it it's fine um, it's fine it, in terms of shows, this is why I need my phone. Um, <laughs> I'll just say I'm binging, I'm binging Ragnarok. Mm, yeah, that one's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in the second season, episode three, I think. Nice. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing. How about you, Allie? Allie <laughs> reads like fiend like and I've no one I've ever met she reads so much I've already read like I think uh, 80 books this year I read a yeah. lot um did you finish the book? yeah yeah okay uh so I'm not binging I don't watch a lot of tv that's how I have time to read so I'm not binging anything on tv I am up to date on Loki so I guess if I'm binging anything that's what it would be they come on on Wednesdays I've seen both so that maybe and then reading I actually am like in the middle of a poetry collection I don't know the name of so I can't recommend that and then I'm reading um Alfred Crosby's America's Forgotten Pandemic it's not really for fun but it feels like fun because he doesn't write dry like a 
academic historian usually sometimes does. So it's it like we moves. don't have to write that way. We really don't have to write that I way. I know. I was so happy. And then it made me go, maybe I'll read the Community Exchange. And it's like, I'm not reading that. I'm not reading that. I'm not going to do it. But um, yeah, so that's what I'm reading is his book. And then it like the parallels between 1918 influenza and coronavirus are just so much more clear to me now that it's spooky. Yeah. So. yeah. What about um, you? I am not up to date on Loki. I only saw the first episode, so don't say anything. Uh, I mentioned it on the last time we recorded, but I'm still watching Line of Duty. Uh, have you ever... I'm watching Line of Duty. It's one of the best shows ever. It's so good. It's what so season? I'm on season five. Okay. And so I was watching it with my parents and now I've come out to Arizona to visit my sister. And I told them, I was like, while I'm gone, you can finish season five. And when I come back, we can watch six together. Right. My mom currently has two broken wrists, so she doesn't have a lot of mobility, right? So I get, I was only here a day and we are on the phone with her and she goes, I finished season five. I was like, mom, it's only been a day. <laughs> She's like, I'm done with season five. And then they called me and they said, we need all your passwords. Cause I have the like YouTube TV and everything on the smart TV for them. And they're like, we need all your passwords. I was like, I was literally gone a day. How did you log out of everything? What is, what has happened? And they're like, will you set it up for us? I was like, no, I'm not home currently. <laughs> But um, yeah, so Line of Duty and Loki. And then reading, I was telling Allie, I'm like 10 pages to finish uh, Midnight Library, which is really good and kind of related to everything we talked about today, about choices we make and, and being open for new opportunities. And So who wrote that? Um, what's his name? Haig? It's like okay. Matthew Haig. It's so Haig. good. It's like it's it's really Midnight Library. Good. Yeah, Midnight Library. I would imagine if you want an audiobook, it's a good audiobook too. Um, and then I brought two summer books. I brought Cool for the Summer, which is like a retelling of Greece, but the the girl like the girl falls in love with a girl over the summer, and then she goes back to school, and then she meets a boy, so she has to decide like who she's into. And then the other one I brought is called um, People We Meet on Vacation, which is like. It advertised as kind of like a Tom Hanks type of rom-com. So I have those for my summer reading. Cool. <laughs> yeah. I like a rom-com for the summer. I feel like that's nice. Peaceful. Like my Tom, Tom Hanks connection is last summer. I read his, the Dutch, he did the reading for the Dutch house. Oh, cool. And he's amazing as the, as the reader for that audiobook. So yeah. Awesome. That's great. Do you use Audible or do you use like a different app? Me? I'm lazy and Amazon already has all of my business. So I use Audible, but I borrow a lot of, actually I borrow more books from the Detroit Public Library yeah. than I actually buy on Audible. So I am always on the Libby app. And now that it's yeah. got the update, yeah. like I listen all the time and I'll share my little secret. I listen at 1.5 speed. Oh yeah. Sometimes 1.75 speed, depending on where I am so it gets it done yeah no I like I love Libby yeah I, I don't use audible or anything I just use from the public library yeah yeah so and I only do audible if I can't find it on Libby yeah yeah I use Scribd which is like an eight dollar a month membership and it's just behind 
like so they don't get everything right away and like the audible originals yeah. they won't get but like they've already got elizabeth yeah. warren's new book and i was like i don't care this is all this yeah. is all i want you for i'm good i don't care yeah. i started with scribd i started there and then yeah. i was like you don't have anything i want everything i want is on this other platform uh and so i started with audible but then i started paying closer attention to what was available on libby and i just started borrowing more from them yeah so yeah, so I wait and like I have a couple of uh, credits and I keep like a couple of credits, but I always, so I'm always pausing my membership, uh, but because I'm always borrowing from Libby. There's never been like an audiobook that I've ever been like, oh, I need this audiobook right now. Like a script has never made me feel that way. So like I'm like, this works and it's like way cheaper than Audible. Yeah. So we're going to yeah. keep rolling it. So yeah, yeah. Speaking of audible and audiobooks I have a question because I feel like you may know what this is but I can never find anyone who knows what this is Kadata um did you ever hear the um the ever funky lowdown by Wynton Marsalis that he did with the Lincoln Center no you gotta check it out it's it's um it's a whole album and it's like a concept album almost like a musical and narrated and it's it's kind of historical and what it talks about and it talks about like power and race dynamics in America. And I found I, my parents were, I came home and they were like, listen to this. And I was like, what are you listening to right now? So and it's new. I mean, I feel like yeah. I loved his from the plantation to the penitentiary. Yeah. Like, I love that as a historian. How could I not? Uh, yeah. And I will play that. I will play that song from the plantation to the penitentiary to the penitentiary at the end of the AFAM survey to let students nice. know what's coming next. Um, but I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's really good. And I just, I sat one day, my parents were like, you need to listen to this. I was like, okay. So I went and I got it on my iPhone and just sat in my bed and listened to all the, just everything in order. And then it's funny, it'll come up, but they're like, they're just, these weird like little interludes and I'm like that's not I was listening to Taylor Swift a second ago give me a second <laughs> I wasn't prepared for this you're like recompute yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's really good I think you really let me let me know what you think it's okay really sounds good right. well thank Anything. you so much for joining us yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry it took this long, but I feel like I was able to speak more coherently about the show now uh, yeah. than I would have if we had done it in January when things are crazy. Okay. Awesome. Thank you sounds so much. Good. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Bye.